0: first a few preliminary um, words on on yoga itself uh, most of you have been coming to the Vedanta Center for a long time and the word yoga and many of these ideas are not strange to most of you so so it's, it's going to be quite easy going forward but still nevertheless to to put it in perspective it'll be good to say a few things about the word yoga I think the word yoga has become more popular now than it was during Swamiji's time today and because it is a popular word because it has entered into mainstream English language um, the word also gets distorted or different people have different ideas about what yoga means so it is helpful to go to the root and see what it originally meant at least when the word began its journey which is really centuries old the word Sanskrit word yoga can be traced to two distinct roots and therefore it has two connected but distinct meanings one meaning of the word yoga is concentration and it is in that sense that Patanjali uses the word yoga. So, yoga, nirodaha, yoga is stilling the waves in the mind. So, it's clearly in the sense of concentration. But yoga has also another meaning, traced to a different root in Sanskrit, and that meaning is to union or joining, closer to the English word to yoke. Now, in order to join, we need at least two things. And when the word yoga is used in the sense of joining, it is often, in Vedanta, it's often in the terms of joining the finite with the infinite. Joining the Jivatma with the Paramatma. Or in theistic language, the joining of the devotee with God. And as I said, both these meanings, concentration and union, are connected. so all spiritual practices can be called by the generic term yoga because all of spiritual practices help join or bring together the seeker of truth with the truth itself however that's not the word that's not the meaning that immediately comes to mind today when we think about yoga or we say yoga studio yoga classes uh, we, the first thing we think about is the asanas and, and and things like that, which is also yoga. It's not that it is not yoga, but that's not the only meaning of yoga. And because the word yoga gets understood in many different ways in many different contexts, because it appears in in books and scriptures of different traditions in. Of course, we find it in the Vedas. We find the reference to yoga in the Gita. Every chapter of the Gita is called a yoga. Um, the word yoga comes in several times in the Mahabharata, in the Ramayana, in the Bhagavata. The word yoga appears in Buddhist uh, scriptures. It appears in Jain scriptures. So it really has a very, very um, broad, broad usage. And then we have, to those of us who have been coming to the to the, uh, Vedanta Center, the four yogas of Swamiji. So it's helpful to know from where these four yogas emerged. Oftentimes, I've seen it read, written in some, some books as well, there is the misconception that these four yogas is a very ancient formulation, which is actually not true. That these four yogas as they are represented in Swamiji's four books are in some ways Swami Vivekananda's unique and original contribution to spiritual literature the words that Swamiji the names that that are given Jnana Yoga, Bhakti Yoga Raja Yoga and Karma Yoga those names are not Swamiji's invention those words those names existed before But the way Swamiji used those names and and the books that have now come in those different names, there is something very unique about them. And so it is helpful, very briefly, to see why Swamiji categorized the entire yogic literature, if you like, or or or, or yoga as a discipline into these four categories. Because it's such a vast... Field, what Swamiji seems to have done, and this is the kind of a, a, in retrospective, we don't see Swamiji explain it, explaining this in so many words, but students of Swamiji have tried to understand his way of thinking. See that what Swamiji noticed, but no matter which spiritual practice we make our own, irrespective of which tradition we come from, the primary instruments we have are really our body and mind. And as human beings, that's all that we have. And the mind has three distinct functions. The first function of the mind is we can call the cognitive function. That that part of the mind which deals with reasoning, with logic. So every spiritual practice that predominantly uses this function of the mind of lodging at the reasoning swamiji classified all those practices under this name called jnana yoga then the other function of the mind is is the affective function the function of the heart the, the, the that part of our personality that deals with emotions and feelings and we know that many spiritual practices predominantly use the power of feelings and emotions and what Swamiji said was that whichever of these spiritual practices again irrespective of which tradition they come from Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam it doesn't matter which tradition but any and all of those practices which predominantly use the power of feelings and emotions they are categorized under bhakti yoga, the path of devotion and a third function of the mind is cognitive or the function of volition of willpower. So when that those spiritual practices which predominantly use that will power as it operates in the external world through the work that we do, all those practices Vamichi categorized under the term karma yoga, the yoga of work, a selfless activity. And then the same power, the will power, as it is employed in the internal world to understand and to train the the power of the mind, Swamiji called it Raja Yoga. Now, I've used the word predominantly. That is because all of us who have each having a mind of our own, we have all these three powers. But not in every one of us all of these three powers are equally developed. One or the other of these parts is, is dominant, which is why sometimes then we categorize people and say, oh, this person is very emotional by temperament, or this person is very rational, or this person is, has got a strong willpower. Now, when we say someone is emotional, it doesn't mean that that person doesn't have the power of reasoning. It doesn't mean that the person has no willpower. It just means that in that personality, somehow this one function dominates the other two. Which is exactly the case with these yogas as well. So in Bhakti Yoga, while the predominant function may be of of feelings and emotions, it would be wrong to think that in the path of Bhakti Yoga, there is no scope for reasoning at all. Or in the path of Bhakti Yoga, you don't need willpower at all. So that's not the idea. So one of these is predominant. Swamiji also said, that in order to realize God, one or more of all of these yogas can become our primary practice. So it's possible to realize God through any one of these yogas. Nevertheless, the ideal that Sri Ramakrishna, Holy Mother and Swamiji have put before us is to try to develop all these four yogas in our life. And the reason is this. That let's say if someone says, I'm just going to practice jnana yoga and no other yoga. If we don't do it perfectly, and most of us will not do it perfectly right away, a haphazard practice of a yoga, of jnana yoga for instance, there's a real risk, a real danger that mere dry scholarship, a kind of an intellectualism may be mistaken for the practice of yoga. And that danger can be minimized to a great extent if alongside that, we try to develop the side of the heart. We try to have some bhakti-related practices as well, which really keeps our dryness that can come from a haphazard practice in check. On the other hand, if someone decides to make, say, bhakti yoga as their only practice, and if that is not done well, Sometimes our so-called devotion may be, unbeknownst to ourselves, merely some kind of a sentimental sentimentality. And we we think that we just cry a little bit and then we say, oh, I've become a big Bhakta. Now, a problem with that, therefore, is that alongside that, if we try to cultivate a little bit of a, a philosophical outlook on life, something that Jnana Yoga will help us do, uh, that danger can be minimized. As Swamiji points out, just as a bird needs two wings, so the jnana and bhakti are the two wings, and then and, and the raja yoga and the power of volition, karma yoga, are the one that navigate. In short, although any one of these yogas may still be a little bit more attractive to us, depending on our disposition, depending on whichever uh, power of the mind is dominant in our, in our heart, Nevertheless, it is helpful to try to find a place for all these different yogas in our life uh, so that there is a harmonious growth of our personality. Having said all that now, so what we will do this morning and in the afternoon is just look at some of the basics of only one of these four yogas, and that is that Jnana Yoga. The the, the phrase knowing the knower comes from, a, is inspired by one portion in the Upanishads, which, which asks this question, Vidyataram Are Kena Vijani Yad, how can the knower be known? And that's how the, the title, uh, Knowing the Knower, uh, has, been, has been used. There is a, in one of the Upanishads, in the Mundaka Upanishad, it just begins with a disciple approaching a teacher, the disciple named was Shaunaka, and he goes to a teacher named Dangiras and asks him, Kaspinu Bhagavo Vitnyate Sarvamidam Vitnyatam Bhavati iti," Meaning, what is it by knowing which everything will be known? Now, we don't know why this student went and asked that question to the teacher. It's possible that there was a view current during that time, that there is some such knowledge available by which everything may be known. Or, it's also possible that this student may have seen there is so much to know in this world. How And there's not enough time and energy to know it all. When we go to a library and you see hundreds and thousands of volumes stacked on shelves, it could be... um, could be a depressing thought that i i know so little there is so much to know and when will i have time to read all this or it could be a relief also to know i'm just fine without having read any of these books in either case we have very little time and energy to know since considering there is so much to be known so it makes sense to see they, is there any shortcut if i can know one thing and i'll know everything something that we do today for instance if we have to um now, so many, so much of our life, daily life is uh, deals directly or indirectly with being online or internet. and when you have to sign up somewhere, they always ask you to have a username and a password. and the security experts often say it's not advisable to have the same password everywhere. Now, how many passwords are we going to remember? <laughs> and so therefore now, well, human brain being what it is, um, we now have password managers. Uh, so, oftentimes they say, all that you need to know is know one password. And if you know one password, then that password manager will fill in the appropriate password there. In fact, there is one app called the one password. How many of you have it? None? Well, I thought that was a very popular one. Anyway, so but you, you know the idea of the password managers, right? So, that is one one manager kind of having all. Whether or not you know it, the 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 idea that if I can do one thing by which everything can be done seems a very attractive idea. In any case, that was the question that this student went to his teacher. Knowledge, knowledge is something we all seek, oftentimes unconsciously. You'll find very few people if you ask, "What do you want?" I doubt many. The answer would be, "I want knowledge." Uh, that. But the word student, or the, the, the word in Sanskrit, and in many Indian languages, uh, it's called Vidyarthi. Uh, arthi, arthi means one who wants. Vidya means knowledge. So literally translated, Vidyarthi means one who wants knowledge. But when we translate that word as student, uh, what do we often, often mean is that, well, someone who goes to school. But simply going to school doesn't make us really a student, really a Vidyarthi. So when we go to school, we need to ask, why am I in school? To get knowledge or to get a degree? But if I, if I have gone to school to get a degree, then I am more a degree not so much a Vidyarthi. So Jnana Yoga is about wanting knowledge. So it's good to begin by asking... Uh, what is knowledge? So it's not easy to it's not easy to to define knowledge. Although very vaguely we might say something like, well, knowledge has the power of 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 well, obviously kind of a circular definition would be knowledge is what removes ignorance, and ignorance is what is removed by knowledge, but then that definition doesn't help. It's more interesting to ask, therefore, how does knowledge arise? And a simple answer to that would be knowledge arises through the contact of my sense organs with the object of knowledge so now knowledge of this glass of water how do I know this is a glass of water because my eyes see it so my sense of perception my sense of seeing comes in contact with this object and and knowledge of this glass comes so we have these five five senses Eyes, ears, skin, uh, uh, tongue, what else is remaining? Nose. Yeah, so the sense of smell. Uh, now, as Swamiji points out in his books, uh, although we are mentioning these specific um, organs, so this, I, when I say I, I'm really pointing here, but this is not really the sense of perception. This is just the doorway through which, the, to, towards that sense. Because we know that um, I'm a, this, my I may be perfect. But if my optic nerve within is destroyed, then I still can't see. So, so don't mistake the senses to be these things which are part of our part of our body. So, all of the knowledge that comes to us comes to us. So, I see this. I mean, look at it in a, in a way. Well, a rays of light from this glass would enter my this eye. All the reflection on the retina goes to the optic nerve, it's interpreted by the the brain, and then through and then I get this knowledge. Now, what I actually see, for instance, now eyes my eyes open and I see a kind of object gets reflected on my screen and so on. But how do I know it's glass? All that I'm seeing is some form. And so knowledge in that sense is often Seen as a kind of a classification, my mind already has an existing archive of of forms and names, and all that I'm doing is filing it away. A certain objects, a certain object now, I look at it, and I, there is an already existing information in a file, let's say, which says an object shaped like this and which looks like this is called a glass, and so immediately I say. This is a glass. So this knowledge really has come from certain external data going inside. And then I'm finding the appropriate category existing already in the, my archive and then filing it. It's a more kind of a filing, a classification kind of a thing. Now sometimes I might see an object or see something and I'm not able to classify it anywhere. And so I, someone says, what is it? Well, it is something. I really don't know what it is. Now, I can't say I don't know what it is because actually I know it is something. I just don't know what name to give it because I don't have an existing uh, file in which to put it in. So in that sense, every kind of knowledge that we have in the world is, is a form of classification. And those people in whose mind all these files things are filed properly, are in order, They are, we would say they are more knowing people. And those in whom they have a lot of information, but they have not been filed well, then we say, well, they may know a lot, but they really are not knowledgeable. So the problem we have is not so much a lack of ideas or lack of information, but a lack of um, proper organization of that data inside our mind. So sometimes people say, oh, this person is a great thinker. As if to say other people don't think. The truth is that every one of us thinks. Only those who think in a very disciplined way, organized way, are called like thinkers. And the others are not. The knowledge that comes to us of the external world because it passes through the senses, and passes through the mind, through the intellect, and this classification process, it's already a filtered knowledge. It's not knowledge that comes directly. And therefore the knowledge that comes is, is colored depending on how my senses and my mind are, are structured. And therefore it's often called indirect knowledge. In Sanskrit it's called paroksha Paroksha means aksha is the other senses which has come from outside. As opposed to, there is another kind. If there is a kind of knowledge which will bypass the senses, which will bypass the mind, which will bypass all these processes and come directly, then that would be called aparoksha jnana or direct knowledge. Knowledge can also be classified as as inner and outer, if you like. In other words, most of the knowledge that most of the time most of us are engaged with are the the knowledge that comes from the external world. But what if we pause and say, I want to know who is this person who is asking these questions? So sometimes the... If we have to kind of speculate about how religion began, we might also have to, how how did this religious thought even entered into human consciousness? Again, it's just speculation. It's possible that human beings looked out and said, well, I see all this world, from where did it come? So questions about the origin of the world, questions about how things work, questions about what is the purpose of life, etc., arose in the human heart looking at the world outside. Which is why most religious traditions begin by with ideas about God. God being a kind of a generic term who seems to explain from where this world came. So God created this world, God made this world. And then there is theologies developed about why God did it and so on. And who God is and where does God live and so on. There's some section of thinkers in um, way back in prehistoric times um, whom today we see as those Vedic thinkers. There's one section of them who paused and said, let us stop this inquiry into the world for a moment. Let's ask, who is this person inquiring about the world? That because the existence of the world is certified by me. Now, I need to find out who this me is before continuing with my inquiry about where the world came from. And that's how the inquiry turned inward. And that's how they began asking, who am I? Now, that would be an inner knowledge as opposed to the knowledge of the world, knowledge of the one who is perceiving the world. So, we always have to deal with these three things in life. There is the subject, there is the object, and there is the activity or action that connects the two. So my knowledge of the world. I know the world exists. I am the knower. The world is the object of my knowledge. And this process of knowing connects the two, the world and me. So who am I? Today, if we, if we were to ask the question, who am I? Most people would think I was suffering from amnesia or something. In fact, years ago, there was a, if I remember correctly, there was a Jackie Chan movie, I think it was called Who Am I, or something similar to that effect. It's, the story is about he's, he's some paratrooper, he's kind of dropped into some enemy territory and um, his parachute doesn't open. So he has a kind of a free fall and he falls unconscious he falls into some da- deep interior forest where only tribals live who have no contact with the external uh, civilization. And those people just find out this person has suddenly dropped from the sky and he's unconscious. Anyway, they treat him, he then becomes conscious and he suddenly finds himself surrounded by all these strangers. And they are all like speaking with him in a language he doesn't understand. And so so he just looks around and says, Who am I? And then they say, They all pause and say, who am I? Who am I? So they think that his name is who am I. So throughout the movie, he's addressed as who am I. (laughs) Now we need to ask, as spiritual seekers, we can ask that question to ourselves. Why do I have to ask who am I? I think it's important to ask that question because our eye either if it, it doesn't 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 have a stable identity in some ways so which part of my me is is me and uh, let me explain now if someone were to come and ask you who are you I think most of us would respond by just telling what our name is but then my identity with that name is 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 very limited that name was given to me maybe a few days after I was born, and in the case of some of us were swamis, the name was given to us when we were ordained swamis. Um, uh, so, th- being identified, being identified with the name, see, the name that you are given after immediately after your birth, um, that kind of that's the only name we have known as babies. So we kind of become identified with it easily. I remember when I when I got sannyas. Um, so i was told by my teacher your name is tyagananda now until that time in life um, i was not called tyagananda so that was not how i was identified with and i remember just um, a couple of hours after that name giving ceremony we had a, we had a, an event in belurmat in which many of us monks had gathered some of these newly ordained monks and some elderly monks and what usually happens in belurmat is that after your ordained monks the uh, uh, a type list of the new swamis immediately gets circulated. And so everyone knows now who these new swamis are with new names. And so I had gone to that uh, event. It's in our training center in Belurmat. And I was standing there um, and then one older swami who who had seen that list, what my name was, he was calling out to me, Tyagananda, come here, come and sit here by my side. And I'm hearing him. I was like, wow, well, he's calling someone. Until someone told me, "Hey, he's calling you." They said, "Oh yeah, I am Tyagananda. <laughs> so it sometimes it takes time to get identified with this name. So clearly, that can't be my like true identity. I wasn't Tyagananda a few years before. Similarly, we won what whatever names we have. But th- obviously, that's not the only identity. If someone asks you, "Who are you?" that question can be answered in any number of ways. Um, we can answer the, that that question in terms of, um, well, a gender identity. I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm this, I'm that. I'm in terms of my my religious identity, my cultural, national, in terms of your political affiliation, um, you're a Democrat or a Republican. It depends on, your, on what um, sport team you're a fan of. Uh, that question can be answered in terms of your relationships like I'm a son I'm a daughter I'm a husband I'm a wife and so on so there are really multiple answers to that question who are you and we often effortlessly move from one identity to another so sometimes um, at home let's say you are speaking with your children at that time well your identity is as a father or a mother but then your parents suddenly drop in and then, then when you turn and start speaking with them your identity is suddenly changed. You're no longer a father or a mother you suddenly become a son or a daughter and we don't we don't even feel something has changed. We very effortlessly move from one identity to the next. In this way we are juggling multiple identities throughout the day throughout our lives. And so it's not unreasonable to ask these different identities which is my real identity am i just kind of it's just like people have sometimes people have more than one credit cards and but then over time you will see depending on what benefits a certain credit card will give you you will tend to use one card more than others similarly among all these many different identities that we have Over time, we will see, we will tend to use, not that the other identities disappear, but we will tend to use more one identity a little bit more than others. One of these identities might become predominant compared to the others. So that's why, let's say, uh, if someone is so immersed in politics, um, and we might say, oh, this person is a political junkie, what we are really referring to is, this person predominantly sees myself as, oh, I am this or I am that. And when that identity becomes prominent, let's say someone is in deep into politics, thinks all the time and devouring political news, and this person says, I'm a Democrat, let's say. And then this person goes anywhere, when he sees other people, the first question would be, is this a Republican or is it a Democrat? So depending on which identity is important to me, which identity is dominant in my heart, I will tend to focus on that aspect of identity in other people as well. So when we think that we are devotees of God, when we think we are spiritual seekers, so among all these different identities, then we have this one more identity, I'm a devotee, I'm a spiritual seeker. And so we have to see, among all these different identities we have, how often do I use this devotee identity? How often do I use the spiritual seeker identity? And one way of recognizing whether I am making progress in my spiritual life would be that I tend, this becomes my dominant identity. That even when you go shopping, even in your workplace, a corner of your heart you never forget that you are a spiritual seeker or you are a devotee. So then that would be my predominant identity. Now that was the question the Upanishads delved into. Not just about which is my predominant identity, but which is my real identity. Now, speaking of real identity, we need to ask a question about reality itself. Well, what is real? In Vedanta, they use a very simple equation, which itself is never proved, but which is how the human mind thinks. The word for real in Sanskrit is Sat or Satya. And The simple equation used in the Upanishads is Satya equals Nitya, that is real equals eternal, that is reality by definition means something that is eternal, something that is unchanging. So one test to know whether something is real or not is to ask whether it is eternal or not. Now we might say, well, how can we arbitrarily create that kind of a equation? Well, it's not as arbitrary as we might think it is. It is not. Um, That's the way we think. But we are just not consistent about it. For instance, why do we say dreams are not real? Why are we able to dismiss easily things that happen in dream while we are not able to dismiss things easily as they happen in the waking life? And the answer is simple. Well, dreams don't last every night I have a different dream and so no matter how terrible I might see things in dream which might still affect us a little bit uh, but still in the morning I can wake up and say oh that was just a dream and let me now get on with my real life so what proof do I have that the dreams were not real the only proof if it all a proof is my just way of thinking if dream were real it would persist this world is real Because it persists. If every morning we woke up and saw a different world, we wouldn't care what happened in this world. Unfortunately, every morning we wake up, we see the same world. And so we really care about it because it's very real. But the dreams are different, we don't care about it. So that which is changing, that which doesn't last, is not real. When you go to see a magic show, and the magician say some kadabra and just kind of produces something, a rose, and then within five minutes that rose disappears again, uh, you don't think that rose was real. Because, well, that was just a sleight of hand, or that was just a kind of mass hypnotism. This is something that we all accept. But where we are not consistent is this. all the identities that we have now that we are aware of none of them last continuously all of them disappear all of them change for instance my identity as a little child so my child identity disappears when i become a teenager that disappears when i become young that disappears so with some of my 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 age related identities change with age my place related identities change with place Some of the identities will remain with me throughout this life, as long as this body is. Even my identity as a human being is not my inseparable identity. Because, well, was I a human being before I was born? Well, what, what makes me a human being? Well, a human body. What makes a dog a dog, a dog's body? And I, my, my body didn't exist before I was born. So I, I was not a human being before I was born. I Will I be a human being after I die? Well, my body will be here. They'll go and just burn it. It'll be just a heap of ashes. So even my human identity is not me. So then who is the real me? That was the question. That is the question that gets asked in Jnana Yoga. And the answer they give is simple. Well, look, at, before we go there. The human personality uh, in Vedanta, to put it in very simple terms, often is seen as trichotomous, is seen as uh, is threefold. There is the, the body that we have, it's visible, tangible, I can see my body, I can see everybody's body. But we know we are not just bodies, we are not just bones and flesh and blood and all of that. We know that there is something more. And that's something more we... We know that we have emotions, feelings, thoughts, uh, the sense of I, uh, memories. N- None of these things a surgeon will find when my body is cut open. And yet they are very much a part of my personality. Now generically sometimes we just say, well that's the mind. The more technical term that gets used in, in our books is called Antakkarana. Antak means inner, karana is an instrument. So if the body is an external instrument, that which we call the mind is the inner instrument. Now the word instrument is deliberate. When we speak about an instrument, there is someone wielding the instrument, someone using that instrument. So who is the one who is using these inner and outer instruments? Are we just the body and mind or are we something more? And that's where the term spirit or soul comes in. Now I don't like to use the word spirit or soul, partly because these are such generic terms which are used in different traditions, and each of these terms are pretty loaded. I mean, you, you, they ring different bells in different minds. So when you say soul or spirit, we already have pre-existing ideas about them, so probably not helpful. So this third part of my personality, which is distinct from the body, distinct from the mind, um, The word that gets used in in Vedanta is simply the Atman. And the word Atman really means simply self, me, the real me. Now why real? Because all of these things really pretend to be me. Because when I refer to the body, it just seems to be me. When I say I'm sitting, I'm speaking, the actual sitting and actual speaking is occurring through the body. So when I say I'm sitting and I'm speaking, Although I'm not really saying I'm the body, that's the implication when I say I'm sitting and I'm speaking. Similarly, none of us really say I'm a mind. We don't. We don't see. Well, there was some, uh, a former governor of what Minnesota? Who said I'm, I'm the body. I'm, they used to call him the body. Ventura? Yeah? They call him the body. Yeah, yeah. So, but that's not like normal. We don't say I'm a body. But when we really say I'm a human being. Um, We're really essentially saying I'm the body because really it's just the human body. So again, when I say I'm happy, I'm miserable, I'm sorry, I'm this, um, those are all states of the mind. Joy, sorrow, suffering, that experience occurs in the mind. And when I say I'm that, I'm really implying that I'm the mind. And because the body and the mind sometimes pretend to be the self, that's why for the atman we sometimes use the word the real me the real self now the difference between them is is clear the body and mind the Upanishads say both of these are material by material is meant they follow the laws of matter they are changeable they have a beginning the growth deterioration transformation and ultimately they die the the spirit the atman is immaterial. By immaterial is meant it doesn't have to follow the laws of matter. Therefore, it has no beginning and no end. So the Atman is not matter. It has no beginning, no end. But what is it? We can say what the Atman is not. But if we want to say what it is, the question would be how would you define how would you describe the Atman again it's beyond description but if we must use some word a good word would be consciousness again a very very problematic term because again the word consciousness rings different bells different people understand different things by the word consciousness but I won't go into too much intricacy maybe we'll have time to discuss about it except to say that there is a very clear division in the ways consciousness is thought of at least in two predominant schools. One is, one for lack of a better term, let me just say Vedanta or, or, or a spiritual outlook on things and a material uh, viewpoint. And the difference is this is consciousness a product of matter or is matter the product of consciousness? Does consciousness emerge? Is consciousness does consciousness emerge from the brain um, or is consciousness independent of the brain so these are the kind that this is where the two schools get uh, have a different way of thinking according to vedanta consciousness is is eternal now one one clarification when we generally use the word consciousness it seems to need an object it's about being conscious of something, being conscious of a table, a chair, and so on. Uh, While it's true that consciousness illumines the object that it is connected with or it focuses on, consciousness can also stand on its own. Consciousness doesn't, doesn't need an object. It's a little bit like light. None of us can see light. But we can see everything because of light. It's light. It's the light that illumines objects. So we don't see light, but we see the objects illumined. And by the illumined objects, we can infer, well, there is light. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to see it. Exactly in the same way, we don't see consciousness. But when we become conscious of objects, we know that we wouldn't become conscious of anything unless there was the light of consciousness shining upon it. Now the Atman, the real me, is consciousness itself. It's that light. It doesn't need an object. So because the light of consciousness shines upon this body and mind, I am even aware of this body and mind. But the consciousness can live even without the body and mind. So. According to Vedanta, therefore, the knower, the real knower is only consciousness, pure consciousness. And everything other than that is an object of knowledge. So the body is an object of my knowledge. Just as I'm able to see the world and know the world and understand the world, I'm able to see my own body and understand it. So when we speak about the world don't simply limit it to only what you see what is out there Um, this body is a part of the world everything that becomes an object of my perception is a part of the world my mind is a part of the world the only difference is this the body and mind are as much a part of the world as this table and chair are the only difference is i see this body and my mind wherever it is as my my body or my mind, and sometimes as just me. I don't look at the chair and table as me, but I might see them as mine. So there is this internal identity, an external identity, and that identity can sometimes take the form of, of a possession that I something belongs to me and then things which are me myself. Again, we can we can go into details later on. So that's knowledge knowledge we have seen the kinds of knowledge direct knowledge indirect knowledge we have seen uh, the different parts of our personality and what upanishads say what the vedanta says is that my real identity the real knower the real me is the atman now that's not how we see ourselves today we we see ourselves primarily as human beings and human beings means beings with a body and mind and ego and all of that stuff, all of that packaged together. So we don't see ourselves as we are. And not seeing things as they are, that is essentially what ignorance means. So having seen a little bit about knowledge, we'll very quickly see a little bit about ignorance. So ignorance is the opposite of knowledge. If knowledge reveals everything, ignorance is something that hides everything. the word that gets often used for ignorance uh, is maya maya if you go to the root meaning of the term ya ma really ma means not there ya means that which is so really maya although it's translated as ignorance and sometimes wrongly translated as illusion maybe indirectly probably that might be one of the sense in which the word could be used Um, really mean that which is not there. So Maya is a very powerful thing. Um, because it is not there, but it makes us feel it is there, Maya is something that makes us do stupid things without making us think we are doing stupid things. It makes it makes the ridiculous look normal. That's the problem with Maya. Um, now, among the things that Swami, Swamiji, he has got three uh, very profoundly um, illuminating lectures on Maya. When you take his book on Jnana Yoga, I would encourage all of you, if you haven't done it before even if you have done it before to read through these three lectures on Maya it it just opens up a whole new world before us Um, well among the things for instance you could say that um, the things that we strive for in life we there are things we aspire for, we put our energy into, we, we strive for it. And we know many of the things, when we are young, of course, nothing seems impossible. But as we grow a little bit older, uh, we become hopefully mature enough to realize that not all of our dreams are going to be fulfilled. And then we tend to tend to kind of understand, try to lower lower, <laughs> lower our expectations with life. But then when we look around, And we see that life is so fragile that any moment, everything can go away. In a likely sense, we might say, well, a normal human span of life is, say, 100. But how many of people live up to 100? We don't even have to fall sick in order to die. Sometimes, apparently, healthy people die. So, since we don't know how long a lifespan we have does it make sense to make long-term plans about anything it's like this We, we learn about budgeting but depending on the funds that are available to us depending on the time that is available to us we can say well within this time with this much funds this is what I can accomplish and we are very realistic most of us are smart people we know how to budget things the problem with life is that the two things that we really need, in addition to well, that we can the things that are essential are really time and energy. None of us knows how much time we have in life, because none of us knows how long we are going to live. None of us knows how much energy we have. We assume that in a normal course I have this much time. In a normal course, I may have this much energy. But what is a normal course? Sometimes sometimes, um, if there is a death, people say, oh, this was a very untimely death. Well, what is a timely death? There's no, there's no such thing as a timely death. Every death is untimely because none of us are ready. It's, it's such a mystery. And therefore, it might seem logical enough that since I don't know how much time do I have, since I don't know how much energy I will have, that I then prioritize the things in my life. Ask myself what is most important to me and then take care of what is most important to me. All of these frivolous things will simply go away. And yet we find a part of us might understand this if we care to think about it but that's not. Most of us live as if we have all the time in the world to do all the things in the world and that is Maya. Sometimes we know that uh, attachments, for instance, attachment to friends or to family or whoever, sometimes can be a source of great joy and meaning in life. But oftentimes, those are the very attachments which bring so much pain, so much suffering. We know that we are suffering, and yet we cannot let go of it. Um, that is Maya. And so, Swamiji, if you when you look at those lectures, of Swami Vivekananda, he gives several examples i remember as a teenager i was studying in i was in uh, high school i think i kept on reading it and everything seemed to be like slipping away it's like what's the point i know it can be a little little bit discouraging it's like suddenly everything appears pointless it's like what's the point if everything is going to go away Uh, it's good not i hope hopefully this shouldn't become cynical shouldn't make us cynical but it should definitely make us uncomfortable religion is true spirituality is not something to something that you can go home with thinking good about yourself not always i think i think that's not that's if you want to just feel good about yourself you can just watch some of this talk show hosts in night they they can have some jokes and laugh and then go to sleep but i think i think I think real spiritual inquiry is something that should make us uncomfortable. It should shake us off, out of the complacency in which our life may have gotten into. It makes us think about things we have not thought about. It make us think about things we are afraid to think about. And maya is one such thing. It has two powers. Um, one part of maya is it that covers reality. And the second part is maya is that it projects something else in its place we know if you want to see something which is not there first of all there is a darkness Well, when you go to see a movie uh, the first thing they do is the whole movie house is made dark and then they project a movie on the screen and then if that movie is well made and if you don't have popcorn in your hand to distract you then you kind of get sucked into that story Um, and then after two hours or whatever length of the movie is you come out come back into the real world so to speak what if you don't come out into the real world the I mean well nowadays with these 3d movies there's a very kind of an immersive experience you can have and sometimes if it is well made you can even forget that you are watching the movie um, what what if you identify with a certain character in that movie and um, and forget to come out. And maybe the movie never ends. It's possible that something like that may have happened already. Why do we need to go and pay even extra to see a 3D movie? When a 3D movie is already going on right from the time we are born. The only problem is this. The, the only problem is this. That... If you can just watch this 3D movie of the world, knowing that it's a 3D movie and that you are watching it, you can enjoy every bit of it. Even if there is a nuclear holocaust, you can still enjoy it because it's a movie. Even if there is an earthquake, even if there is a is a mudslides, if there is death, violence, and of course not just negative things, but there could be fun, there could be joy, there could be friendship. There be All of these things you can enjoy if you're just watching the movie. Unfortunately, this cosmic 3D movie is very well made. Well, the producer-director is God, so (coughs) you can see it's it's really, it'll get all the Oscar (laughs) awards if this movie was ever (coughs) put on it. And then it's so well made that we have forgotten that we are watching it. We have gotten identified with a certain character in that movie and we have almost kind of jumped into that movie screen and forgotten to come out. And that character that we have gotten identified with is the character now you see as yourself. So you are just a one character in this one big cosmic drama. And the whole, all the, what the yogas would ask us to do is find a way to, to get out of this mess. And there are different ways of doing it. What, what the Jnana Yoga way is to, to just re- make us think, to remind us, and to keep us nagging into our heads that you are supposed to be watching this. You are not supposed to be acting into it. Um, in Shakespeare's, I think it's in As You, As you Like It, or uh, one of the places where there's this, Shakespeare says, all the world's a stage. It's kind of a very inspiring one, long passage. So in some sense, that's so true. I'm not sure whether Shakespeare was thinking about Vedanta when he said that, but but I think it's it's a it's a it's a f- fabulous imagery that that um, this the whole thing is a one big drama, and we are actors. And the problem is we have become very good actors. And who who is a good actor? A good actor is one who completely forgets his or her own identity and becomes the character he or she is playing Um, sometimes some of these good actors will not need any props if there's a tragic scene they kind of put themselves into that character then method acting they'll kind of just automatically the tears will start coming out so we have become good actors and uh, you know if you are a good actor you will get more roles to play you will never be out of job so what a Vedanta student has to do is really become a bad actor if you become a bad actor, let's say it's a wealthy millionaire who is now loves acting and is now playing the role of a homeless beggar. Now, if that millionaire who's playing the role of a beggar can never forget he's a millionaire, he won't be able to do justice to that role. He will have that same, maybe, arrogance of, of a wealthy person, even as this goes about like a, like a poor person, and the director will say, no, 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 that doesn't work you're out, you're fired. You'll get some some other actor there. And then you're out, you're free. So what Nana Yoga really means is to become a bad actor. So now we have become good human beings. We do We do things that human beings are supposed to do perfectly. That's the problem. Now if I try to remember that I'm really a divine being, I'm spirit, then maybe... At least for for some time, you are not going to be a very good... Well, people are not going to see you normal. Well, people saw Ramakrishna as not normal. Many people thought he was crazy. Because he wasn't doing... He was not playing, playing true to the role. He wasn't being a kind of pujari like the other pujaris were. He was a very different kind of a pujari. So he wasn't normal. And so he was a very bad actor. Bad pujari. And so he said, he lost his job as a pujari. So we have to become bad human beings in order to get back our divine identity. So I'll, I'll, I'll just I'll stop here because there is really a lot can be said. Um, so we have uh, 15 minutes or so. So if you want to uh, have any thoughts or any questions related to what we have said so far, um, we, could, we could talk about it. Yeah, okay, yeah. How do we differentiate between consciousness and an intuition? <clears throat> well, I, I don't know in what sense the word intuition is being used here. Consciousness, I mean, even, even to have an intuition, we need consciousness. I mean, how can I be, know what my intuition is without being aware of it? So even to be aware of my intuition, I need consciousness first. So consciousness is always the primary thing. Uh, So I don't think there is a question of distinguishing it, it's just that they are completely two different things. Uh, My intuition itself will be an object of my consciousness. Again, uh, my consciousness is again not not a very correct way of saying it, because consciousness is not something mine, when I am that consciousness. So, often times when we speak about the spirit, the Atman in me, we kind of think that this body and mind the, the body is a kind of a container in which the atman is which is actually not not really true it's 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 not that the atman is inside the body in as much as it's the body and the mind which are outside the atman it's a little bit like the example that often gets given in in books is um like if you go to go to a big lake or a, or a sea or an ocean, which is this vast body of water. And then you take a glass and you immerse that glass inside that water. Now the glass, let's say, this is the glass and I immerse that, this glass in a lake. Now this water inside this glass was really, a, is, was and is still that lake water. But this water now which is inside, covered by this glass... Um, if I ask this water, if let's say if I spoke with water in general before I immerse the glass and I ask them, "Hey, who are you?" And Maybe the glass, the water will say, I- "I'm lake water." And then I immerse this glass, and then I ask this water again, "Hey, who are you?" Possibly that glass, might, the water will say, "I'm a glass water." Well, that that which was a lake water has suddenly become a glass water. Uh, what has changed really? Nothing has changed. That same water is there. The only thing is that water now has gotten covered by, by this thing. And if this glass is broken, and then that lake water again becomes a lake water. It is always a lake water. It just acquired a temporary identity of a glass water. In the same way, we are all that divine being. We are all infinite now this is this glass or a container of the body and mind in which that divine is now kind of filled in and you ask who are you I say, i'm a divine being sorry i'm a human being because i have this human container and with, when this human container breaks away i'll be a divine being again that's the idea having said which there's another one question would be what happens when i die I said there are these three things. There is the body, there is the mind, and then there is this Atman. What we normally call by death really means only the death of the external body. Just this body. Not the mind. The mind that we all have now is the mind that we have had in all of our previous births. We don't get a fresh mind in every birth. So it's only a fresh body. Which is why we don't become enlightened after death because we the it's like this it's if there is a glass within a glass like there is you must, you had these puppets a puppet within a puppet. they're kind of a Russian doll kind of a thing they had so it's a little bit like that so let's say this is a glass inside this there is another glass and inside that there is a water so what death really means is this external glass breaks away the water is still still inside And it's this mind then, which is inside, which then goes to this heaven and whatever different forms of ideas of afterlife we have and then acquires a different body. So samsara really means as long as we are contained into body and mind, we are not free. So in order for me to truly realize my divinity, simply the destruction of the body is not enough. Because the body is going to go anyway, without any effort. You don't need any spiritual practice to die. In fact, most people do spiritual practice with the idea they will live long. Uh, The problem is really the mind. It's the mind that persists life after life after life. And all of these yogas, what they will do is is try to, to remove that barrier of the mind. Because only then we will truly realize God. So that's the idea. Here is the question about bad acting. What, what, what is meant by bad actor? By bad actor, I am simply using the word bad, bad actor in the sense that I don't forget my real identity. And which is why I am not able to get immerse myself fully in the role that I am playing. And if I am not able to identify with the character that I am playing then it won't really be the best acting the best acting would be that I become completely one with that act it's only in that sense I'm using the word bad acting does concept of Maya exist in dualistic schools of Vedanta it seems more a non-dualistic idea well the word Maya occurs in in pretty much most literature although it may be seen and understood in different ways Um, the way the way that I'm using the term Maya is clearly as it is used in, in Vedanta in a non-dualistic sense maya doesn't really mean some seeing something which is not there but seeing something differently seeing something and the classical example for instance is, is um, a rope uh, a coiled rope in a, in a semi-lit room which is mistaken for a snake so the snake that we see there is a is the product of maya now, when I say, is the, the, the question, when I mistake a rope for a snake, what is the status of the snake? Does the snake exist or it does not exist? You cannot say the snake does not exist because, well, if it doesn't exist, how am I seeing it? So, you cannot say it's not existing. Neither can you say that it's existing because... Uh, When you switch on the light, you don't see it there. Neither can you say it existed only during that time, because then where did it go? Maybe you just search for it somewhere. So, because you cannot say it is there, you cannot say it is not there, you cannot say it is both there and not there at the same time, Um, therefore it's called inexpressible. The word that is used in Sanskrit is Anirvachaniya. You cannot say it is, you cannot say it is not. That is also the status of Maya. So therefore, in, in, when, I, when I spoke earlier about real, and I said real is something that is eternal, the opposite of real or sat is asat, that which is not real. Now that which is not real, if it, real is identified with eternality, then unreal means it's something that never existed at no point in time it ever existed. So something which no one has ever seen and it never was. That is unreal. Uh, the example that they used to give in our old books, they used to call it Shashashringa, which really means horns of a ra- on a rabbit or a hare. Today we cannot really use that example much. It's kind of outdated with, with all this... Um, with all the genetics now you really can grow a horn and a hair if you want Uh, so I think that you can't use that example anymore Uh, but for instance uh, an example of something which is unreal might be um, a square circle for instance no one has ever seen a square circle so that is unreal. Now what is the status of the world? You cannot say it's unreal because we are seeing it. You cannot say it's real because like dream, it vanishes when we go to sleep. So it's neither real nor unreal. Now these things, which are neither real nor unreal, are called in Sanskrit by the term mithya. Uh, in Sanskrit, they define it by saying, yat asat bhāsamānam, that which is unreal, but which appears to be real. That is the status of the world. Just like the status of the snake it's unreal but it appears to be real and that's the problem that which appears to be real we take it to be really real that's that's what happens when you go to see a movie if it's a well-made movie for the duration of the movie you take it to be real because of which you are affected by whatever is happening on the screen if it's a very tragic story people weep people cry if it's a horror movie sometimes children want to close their eyes they don't want to see it because it suddenly appears very real so that's that's the status of the world um, the only and, and the Vedantic position is that the only entity that is really real for all time is me in other words I can question the existence of anything apart from me, I can never question my own existence. I may doubt whether God exists. I may doubt whether the world exists. But no one can ever say, I'm not sure whether I exist. There is is a logical fallacy there. Because if if I'm not sure whether I exist, uh, if I doubt whether I exist, I can ask whether does the doubter exist? is the one who is doubting his or her existence exist. Because if I don't exist, then the doubt itself is completely immaterial. So that, that's how the thinking goes. If this whole life seems to be a drama, doesn't it make us less human, less attached with good feelings? Um, yes. Yes but not just attached with good feeling less attached to bad feelings too less attached to anything really which is not a bad idea um, think about it this way in deep sleep when you're not even dreaming you're not a human being then do you feel you are a human being in deep sleep you know and yet do you miss anything in fact The only time, presently, short of getting a samadhi, the only time we really are fully at rest, fully at bliss, experiencing nothing but joy, is in those few minutes every night when you are deep asleep. And that time we are not a human being at all. There is no karma, there is no stress, there is no anxiety, there is nothing. So not being a human being Seeing it as a drama is not as bad as it sounds. The only problem is letting go of something that is known in order to get something that is unknown. That is the main problem. And I'll just mention one story and we'll close because it's 12.30. There are many questions and hopefully we'll get time to address them in the afternoon. Um... There is a story, probably many of you already know it, about one person who was, who was, um, went hiking and um, late night, um, uh, it had become night, the sun set and he wasn't unable to, uh, unable to return in time and suddenly his uh, flashlight, he didn't have a flashlight, it became dark, he didn't know where to go and unbeknownst to himself, he was on the edge of a cliff and then suddenly, there was a free fall. He was falling down on the edge of a cliff in dark and he was kind of flaying around his hands here and there and suddenly, luckily for him, he was able to grasp at a tree that was jutting out of that cliff, uh, wall of the cliff. That was the only thing that somehow prevented his free fall into the deep valley below. Everything is pitch dark and he's suspended now there And he's crying out for help so he looks up and asks is there anyone there is there anyone please help help is there anyone and of course the remote part of the park where he was nobody's there nobody responds and then suddenly the clouds part and the Lord the voice of God speaks from above God tells this person don't be afraid my child I'm here. Just follow what I say. Just do exactly what I tell you. And he says, Yes, Lord, I'm ready. Then God says, Let go of that tree. <laughs> now just think about it. Just pitch dark. The only support he has is this tree. So this person is very pragmatic. He thinks about it for a moment. And then he looks up again and says, Is there anyone else up there? <laughs> That is our problem. We, there are things when we are asked to let go, there are things that you are willing to let go. There's absolutely no doubt. Especially if there is something you don't like, something you hate, you very willingly let go of it. But then if someone says, let go of your human identity, you're not a human being, then you say, wait a minute, is there any other way I can go about doing it? That's the problem. And th- that is the main problem because unless I let go of my human identity, i cannot get my divine identity if i am attached to that snake if i refuse to switch on the light i will never see the rope in fact that story really has a little bit of sad ending because that person who refused to receive or accept god's advice refused to let go of the tree the temperature fell down at night he was froze to death next morning When people passing by that found a person suspended from a tree, frozen. And that tree was only five feet from the ground. It was dark. He didn't know. If he had just let go, listen to what God had said, you would have landed safely below. There you go. That's what. So we will will stop here now and then we'll meet in the afternoon. So thank you tena May the Divine lead us from the unreal to the real, from darkness to light, from death to immortality. May the Divine Consciousness fill our hearts and protect us. I would like to begin by stating what is sometimes called the, the karma chain. It's possible to put the whole um, yoga um, picture, if you like, uh, in, to express it through uh, what is sometimes called the karma chain. And that is, um, in Sanskrit, they say, avidya, kama, karma, janma, dukkham, uh, which uh, really means this the origin of our experience now, the origin of the world, is often traced back to ignorance. That in the beginning, and this is the phrase that gets often used in the Upanishads, in the beginning, um, everything was one, everything was undivided, there was just this one infinite pure spirit that remained. Now suddenly, Something seems to have happened by which that oneness was affected. That one became somehow many. Now how can the one become many? The one way by which a one can become many is by making it into pieces. So now if this is one piece, let's say. If there's one piece, it has to be made many. I'll have to really break it up into pieces. So when this one Brahman became many, was did it happen that way? So now that we have many pieces of Brahman here and there, unfortunately that's not possible because Brahman is is unbreakable. It doesn't. It cannot be made into parts. Um, and so how did this one become many? The only way one can become many. is is by by the way a rope became a snake just like a rope can never become a snake but a rope can be mistaken for a snake exactly in the same way one cannot become the many but one can be mistaken for the many so this mistake is essentially what that ignorance is just think about it this way It's difficult for us to understand what this one becomes many by just looking at our present experience because what we are noticing is we are already many. But let's say you are alone at home and you have not met or maybe you are alone on some solitary island. You are the only person there. You are just one person there. And then you go to sleep. When you go to sleep, after a few minutes you fall asleep and then you start dreaming. Now in your dream, just like in the kinds of dreams that we see, you perhaps see trees, mountains, forests, you meet many people, you see, you see a whole lot. It's almost like a whole new world in our dreams. Now, from where do the many that we see in our dream come from? Because there were really not many to begin with. I was the only person in the island. And as I went to sleep, I was the only person in my bed. So suddenly now how these many people, and from where do all these trees, mountains, and rivers come? And clearly we know that a dream does not, is not possible unless we fall asleep. And I am not talking of daydreams here, just the regular dreams that we have. So therefore, sleep is essential. In order for dream to come but one way of understanding sleep is at the state of ignorance ignorance of who I am in the morning we speak about the different identities that we have one way of understanding sleep is however temporarily all of our identities somehow disappear so let's say you had a good dinner and then you go to your room you lie down in a bed and switch off the light many of us most of us are not fortunate enough to fall asleep right away so many of us have to kind of wait and turn and twist in our bed for a while and then somehow at some point sleep comes so even when we have made adequate preparations to go to sleep like finding a comfortable bed and switching off the light Until you actually fall asleep, until that time, if someone were to ask you, Who are you?, you would still be able to answer that question. You know where you are. Well, I'm in my bed. You know who you are. And what does sleep mean? Suddenly, something comes over. You no longer are able to answer the question, Who you are? And you no longer know that in your bed. So, sleep is ignorance of your waking identity everything connected with your waking identity and it is that ignorance that makes this production of the dream world possible so you were just one person who went to sleep and suddenly these many have come and of course when you wake up you still find you are just the one person that is how the many can come from one seem to come from one and then when you wake up this whole dream world that you had projected suddenly somehow again goes back into this one person and you wake up and you find you are all alone. Now what if this one infinite being that we think about, the one who is Brahman fell asleep. Suddenly Brahman fell asleep and Brahman started dreaming this whole Srishti, this whole creation. And then in this old creation all these people and trees and forests and mountains and then one among these many people in this dream the Brahman suddenly said I am that person so that is how now we seem to have become many so ignorance is necessary so in the beginning ignorance now once ignorance comes the next natural thing to happen is a desire will spring into the heart. Now, why would desire spring as a result of ignorance? When we speak about ignorance, we have to say ignorance of what? In the beginning, I was complete, purna. That's why we say Purna Adaf, Purnam Idam. I was whole, I did not lack like anything. I was completely satisfied. Now, ignorance means I forgot that I am the infinite. I forgot that I am the whole. Suddenly, ignorance of my infinitude means I begin to feel I am finite. I begin to feel I am incomplete. The moment that awareness of one's incompleteness comes, there is a desire to complete myself. You will see that we desire only those things that we lack, only those things that I want that is what I aspire after and the things I want are the things that I don't have and therefore ignorance ignorance of my completeness produces the uh, false awareness that I'm incomplete and then there is the desire to complete myself and then whatever I feel will complete me I want those things and the kind of society in which we live today um, the consumeristic uh, society in which we live that 's the purpose of all all uh, advertisement is to somehow make you feel you are incomplete unless you have our product, unless you get an iPhone, you will not be complete, and then that 's what everyone runs after so the environment around us is trying its best to make us feel. I'm incomplete in so many ways. Which is then producing all the desires in me that I need it. Life would be impossible without it. So that's how ignorance leads to desire. And desire leads to action. Because I feel, oh, without a cup of coffee, I just, it's just impossible. I need a cup of coffee. So therefore, what I need to do then is to go and do something about it. You either go and fix yourself a cup, or go to Starbucks, or go wherever, and action is needed. Then once you have that cup of coffee in your hand, well you drink it. And when you drink it, if you enjoy it, then it's going to make you happy. So, ignorance, desire, desire leads to action, action leads to result. And the result in terms of experience, the result is either joy or sorrow, sukha or dukkha. If it is something that we enjoy, if there is success, if there is fulfillment, it makes us happy. If there is failure, if there is uh, some kind of a setback in some way, it makes us unhappy. So in terms of experience, the result is either Sukha or Dukkha. Now in order to experience Sukha or Dukkha, you need a body. If I have to suffer, well there is no suffering if there is no body. But there is no experience of joy either unless there is body and mind so in order to experience either joy or sorrow I need a body and mind and getting a body really means that is what birth is I mean what is birth you get a body so pay attention to the chain it is ignorance leads to desire desire leads to karma Karma leads to karma karmaphala, that is sukha or dukha. And sukha dukha means getting a body, which really means janma, birth. Now a birth is inseparable from death. If something is born, it's going to die someday. Which is why then, birth and death go together. Now when we get a body, when we are born, uh, we experience the results of our actions. That is how all of us experience joy and sorrow in life. But we are not simply experiencing things because of the desires we are also doing things so we are simultaneously keep on doing karma and then we are also experiencing joy and sorrow the problem is we always do more karma than the results that we experience in other words if we think of karma in terms of dollars so every action i do i am accumulating karma karma dollars if you like. And every experience I get, joy or sorrow, I'm spending it. So sukha-dukkha is spending karma. Doing action is earning karma. Now we know that while well, in terms of just regular dollars, if your income is always more than your expenditure, then your balance is going to grow more and more, which is actually nice. Unfortunately, in terms of karma dollars, it's just the opposite. The more karma dollars I accumulate, the more times I'll have to be reborn. So the trick is, therefore, to have as little karma as possible. Unfortunately, we can't stop. We really don't have the choice between doing karma or not doing karma. If you have body and mind, we we will. And by karma, is meant really not just going and taking some job somewhere, but even... Thinking is a mental activity. I mean, everything, we cannot live without karma. And so the choice that we have is really not between doing karma and not doing karma. Our choice is between what kind of karma I will do. Whether I should do good karma or bad karma. That's the choice. But since we are doing more karma, we always have a lot more experiences to, in our, in our, in our, account if you like and therefore when it's time this body has to go which is when death comes i still have this so much karma which is not worked out which is why i have to take another birth and then to experience the results of those karma but i still do more action so i keep on doing more karma and keep on experiencing so i keep get born again and again and again now that in itself is should not have been a problem if, if it would have been a, just fine. I mean, what's the problem? Some people do say some people really don't like the idea of moksha, because it seems terrible to have to say, well, you'll never be born again, and and they say, well, if I'm not born again, what will I be doing? Where will I be? I think, I think if we frame moksha as being not being born again, then it's really problematic. But if you tell someone you will never die again, I think that seems wonderful. But actually, it's the same thing. If I don't have to die again, I shouldn't be born again. It's just just how you, how, how, what kind of uh, title you give. There there is some of you may have heard this that um, there's one person who was a great uh, uh, writer of travelogues. So this person went and spent seven days in France, he lived in Paris, and then his experiences in Paris, he wrote a great book, very well written book, about seven days in Paris. And it was released, and there was no market, most copies remained unsold. And then the publisher got an idea, so they recalled all the copies, and they did not change a word from that book, they just changed the title. The title they said, Seven Nights in Paris, and then became a bestseller. (laughs) But actually, I mean, if he spent seven days there, he spent seven nights as well. So sometimes, I think, um, calling moksha as that you'll never be born again is not that attractive a way of expressing it. But if you say you'll never die again, then they say, okay, tell me more about it. So that's the chain. Now, although I said there is Sukha and Dukkha in life and most of us probably would describe our experience in life as well there is joy and sorrow unfortunately some of the great ones whom we worship and adore did not refer to the experience that joy and sorrow the Buddha's saying is well known he just said "It's just suffering Dukkha Krishna in the Gita Says Anityam Asukham Lokam Imam Prapya Bhajasvamam, having come to this Anitya temporary, okay, we can understand that Asukham, joyless. Krishna would have, could have referred to the world as with joy and world filled with joy and sorrow. He just said joyless. Another place in the Gita, he refers to the world as Dukhalayam Ashashvatam, Dukhalayam alaya means an abode. That's why we say Himalaya an abode of snow. A Dukkhalaya is an abode of sorrow. Now that's something that should make us pause and think. Why did Krishna and the Buddha and among many others as well refer to the experience in the world as, as a sorrow, suffering, joyless? Now if these two people were say homeless, penniless people, depressed with suffering with depression, we probably may not have taken the word seriously. But we find that they didn't lack anything. In fact Krishna is the most joyful figure we meet. So how come those who didn't lack anything, who were themselves happy and contented, looked upon the world as joyless, as filled with suffering? They clearly um, we need to take those words to heart and and ponder over them. It's possible to say that there are two kinds of sorrows. The one kind of sorrow is the sorrow that we are all familiar with. The the sorrow, for instance, that many people experience due to the suffering caused by homelessness, by hunger, and the sorrow and suffering that many of us in smaller or a larger degree experience through in our own family situations through some misunderstanding with some relatives or resentment anger jealousy betrayal abuse there are many different ways in which suffering can come in our lives and that's very real Um, we cannot refer to that kind of suffering as as universal in the sense that not everyone in the world is homeless. Not everyone goes hungry. Sure, there are people who are hungry, there are people who are homeless and something needs to be done about it. But it's not an experience of every human being. And there are ways in which we can try to alleviate those forms of suffering. In many communities and many societies, some good... Um, socio-economic reforms have helped uh, minimize poverty to a large extent uh, to overcome the difficulty of hunger and homelessness and so on. I mean, it's there, but it's possible to do something about it in order to at least minimize it. But there's one other class of suffering about which you really can't do anything. And Krishna refers to that in the Gita in that verse, when it says, Janma mrityu jara vyadhi dukkha dosha anudarshanam, the, the defective nature of human existence itself. The existence that is defined by Janma mrityu, life and death, or birth and death, uh, jara, the process of aging, vyadhi, illness. Now that is something, it's, that you can say is truly universal. There is not a single living creature who we can say is immortal. Mortality is embedded in our existence. And, and that's, that's no fun. No matter how, how happy we will be, consciously or unconsciously, somewhere there in the corner of the heart is this fear of death. In Sanskrit sometimes, uh, Patanjali calls it Abhinivesha. The instinctive fear of death. And that's why death is not a very pleasant subject. If someone starts talking about death, people say, Okay, let's change the topic. Uh, but that's the reality. A reality we don't want to think about. There is a process of aging. We can try to pretend to be young, but we can't stop getting old. No matter how much organic food you eat, how much exercise you take, no one can say that I have never fallen ill or I will never fall ill. So illness, aging, death, all of these things are very painful processes. And these are truly universal. Then of course there is the mind. The stress, anxiety levels in the mind seem embedded. It is looking at these things that the Buddha said life is suffering. That Krishna said life is joyless. We can call this second form of suffering and sorrow existential. There is no connection with that existential philosophy. I am just using it in a more literal sense. That these forms of suffering are connected with our very existence as human beings. If I am a living being I really don't have any choice I have to be mortal I am going to get old I am going to fall ill sometime or the other and of course then the, the limitations of the mind that's just there exactly as we are able to distinguish between these two kinds of sorrow and suffering it's also possible to distinguish between two kinds of joys. Now, one kind of joy we know. You you get your favorite dish, you meet some loving friends through through love, friendship, um, familial support, uh, job satisfaction. And if your party wins the election, you have a president of your choice. Or if your team wins the match, that makes you happy. So, happiness is again something that we experience uh, in our lives. But... um, but that's that's one kind of happiness that comes and goes but there is a deeper kind of happiness the happiness that we see on the on the on the face of enlightened beings the happiness you see the kind of joy you see in the face of Ramakrishna in that face of Samadhi in the in the in the face of Holy Mother Swamiji now that happiness is not dependent on any external event or a person that happiness is inbuilt so that happiness is, again, is a very existential kind of bliss with our very existence as the Atman, as the spirit. So there are these two kinds of joys, two kinds of sorrows. The kind of joy that you and I experience in our daily life is that superficial variety. Those amongst us who are able to dive deeply and ask some basic fundamental questions about human existence suddenly discover that life is not really about joy and sorrow, it's really just sorrow. The first chapter in the Gita is aptly called the Arjuna Vishada Yoga. Vishada means it's a grief, it's disappointment. So the, the entire teaching of the Gita, for it to begin first, Arjuna had to really experience that great form of disappointment and vishada. Most of us, if we look at our own lives, uh, what what is it that brought me to spiritual life? What is it that made me take spiritual life seriously? And we will see that there is some kind of disappointment inside our heart. And no matter how much people might say, Oh, I'm, I'm the happiest person, I have no problem, everything is fine. Now, if everything is fine, you don't need God. You don't need religion. Why do you need? Just just be what you are. But the fact that we turn to spiritual life, whether we like to admit it or not, there is something lacking. Houston Smith, the great uh, uh, scholar and, and, and a really great person, some of you may have read books about him, by him. Uh, so he's once said that each of us has a God-shaped hole in our heart. And we try to fill that hole, hole with that emptiness with a lot of other things. Nothing fits. Because only God can fit into that God-shaped hole. In other words, what you were saying was, we need a higher spiritual ideal in our lives. So the Vedantic position is this. That we are that infinite being. We forgot our true nature. That is how that desire entered into the heart. From that infinite being, that ignorance means this Maya that we spoke about this morning. Swami Vivekananda said one way of describing Maya is a kind of a veil, kind of a a covering. And that covering or that filter comes into three forms. Desha, Kala and Nimitta. Desha is space. Kala is time and nimitta means the causality, causation. So everything that we encounter in life, either mentally or physically, um, is bound by these three dimensions. There is space, there is time, and there is a law of cause and effect. And all of this occurred because of ignorance. The Atman, or that ultimate reality, the supreme being, is beyond time therefore you cannot say when did god when was god born because birth means a beginning and god is beginningless because god is beyond time where does god live again if i think about heaven in terms of place then it's something that occupies space so again there is no such thing as god dwelling in some place all these childish ideas of god as god living in some some different galaxy if you like that just just doesn't make sense from a Vedantic standpoint so God is beyond space and then God is beyond the law of cause and effect but that's what ignorance does so God beyond time when God becomes ignorant of that God suddenly sees oneself so coming across that veil of Maya you sacrifice that timelessness and enter into the world of time and become mortal. Experience that mortality. When you go beyond that idea of space and then you come into this world filled with space you suddenly become limited. Because without space you are infinite. With space you become a limited being. And then you are beyond the law of all laws really. And then you forget that and you come into this world of laws that's where you find bound by karma so that's our present situation bound by time space and causality and freedom or moksha really is not about going, not being born again or anything, it simply means going beyond time beyond space and beyond causality in some Sort of way, our the closest we come to it, at least in terms of experience, is when we are fast asleep. When you're fast asleep and you're not even dreaming, you're not aware of time, you're not aware of space, there is no space there, and there is no there is no law there. Um, and all of us, none of us experience any any kind of sorrow or tension or anxiety when we are fast asleep when we are not even dreaming in a state of sushupti the only difficulty or the only way it, dis- it can be distinguished from the highest state is that the state of deep sleep is a state of ignorance and of course it doesn't last a stupid person falls into sleep wakes up still stupid but if a stupid person if the stupid person goes into Samadhi and the person comes out of Samadhi he or she is a sage so that's the only difference. Going beyond time, space and causality consciously to acquire that consciousness is the main thing. So again, go back to that chain. Ignorance, desire, karma, birth. And then it becomes a loop because I, I, I'm born, I keep on doing karma, I keep on experiencing dukkha, then I die. But because a lot of karma is still there, I'm born again. And so it becomes a circle. And a circle has no beginning and no end. And that's why it's called samsara chakra. Samsara means samyak sarati, that which is constantly changing, constantly moving, and chakra is a circle. And therefore there seems to be, there's no end to it, because there is a circle is a circle. The only way to break this chain, they often say that any chain is as Strong as its weakest link and so now in this chain the link between ignorance and desire then ignorance and uh, yes ignorance and desire then nothing much you can do about it once you're ignorant desire will automatically come um, the, and if if you have done karma birth will automatically come. There is really nothing much you can do about it. The only weakest link in this chain is the link that connects desire with karma. If you can strike it there, kind of of break this chain there, then the whole thing collapses. And essentially, you just wake up. So you are Brahman, you wake up and find that you are Brahman. Swami so, mean, Sivanandaji, Mahapurush Maharaj, once said, what is this big deal about people make about realization? Because realization simply means knowing who you are. So it, there is nothing, nothing big about it really, right? I mean, what, the big thing has happened now that we have forgotten who we are. And just again recognizing who we are, that's essentially what Ishwar love or God realization means from a Vedantic perspective. So that link, that weakest link, now the instrument that we use to break that chain, that link that connects desire with karma, depending on what instrument is used, we give a different name to that yoga. So if we use the instrument of detachment or vairagya as it is sometimes called, to break that link between desire and karma then that is what happens in Karma Yoga. So in Karma Yoga, the instrument that is used is detachment. In Jnana Yoga, the instrument that is used is discernment, which sometimes gets translated as discrimination or Viveka. In Bhakti Yoga, the instrument that is used there is devotion, love for God. It's love for God that will break that connection between desire and karma. And in, in the Raja Yoga, the instrument that is used is this mental inner discipline, Shama Dhammatitiksha, what sometimes gets called in, in Vedanta, Shamadhi Shatsampati, the six treasures, including self restraint, etc. So these are the four primary instruments. Used to break this chain. And depending on which instrument is used, we give that yoga a, sp- a separate, a special name. So in Jnana Yoga, the instrument that is used is viveka, or discernment. Now, viveka, one way of understanding viveka is looking deeply, looking clearly. A, c- a clear vision is very important. We know that. When you are driving and if it's foggy and your windshield gets becomes foggy, then that's problematic. There's danger. A lot of accidents can occur that way. But if your windshield is clear, the road is clear, then, then you know where to go and how to drive. Now what if the windshield of our mind is not clear? If it, that has become foggy. And we are navigating our way, we are driving through this very intricate, complicated roads of this world. And the windshield of our mind has become foggy. We kind of probably don't see it so. It's not, well, if it's totally blank, then you're just driving. That generally doesn't happen. We're kind of able to see, but it's very, very unclear. And that's why we sometimes make a mistake. The wrong choices that we make, the bad decisions that we take... Is often because we are not able to see things clearly, and that's because the mind mind uh, is not clear. That's why in northern India, sometimes when, when uh, especially among the monastic community, some sadhus they meet, and in Hindi, sometimes they say, "Drishti saaf hai," or uh, "Darshan kaisa hai." Now they are not really asking about my eyesight. "Drishti saaf hai" means really, am I seeing things correctly? And we have got to admit, we're not seeing things clearly. We are seeing things very differently, actually. Just think about it this way. Those amongst us who have, like, for instance, uh, many of us are here devotees of Ramakrishna. So when we go to Dakshineshwar, when we visit the Bhavatarini Temple, and many of us, I imagine, have done that, um, so when we go into that temple of mother kali and see what do we see well of course it's uplifting we know because historically that place is connected with ramakrishna's life we have read about it we have thought about it we have meditated on it and we feel really uplifted in there. that's true but what do we see and i would imagine that most of us see a, a the image, the same image of Mother Kali, the same murti of Mother Kali that Ramakrishna worshipped. Um, but we still see an image. But when Ramakrishna worshipped there, he didn't see the image. He saw a living, breathing mother. So we are standing at that same spot where Ramakrishna stood there decades before us. And he saw something very different than what most of us see. Um, who, Who was seeing it correctly? If we just go by democratic norms that the majority is always right, then there was something wrong with Ramakrishna because very few saw what the rest of us see. But and yet, we see that now what he saw was the truth. What we are seeing is now something is hidden from us so one of the one of the things that we learn in spiritual life is um, the dem- de- democracy doesn't work in spiritual life. the majority is not always right. in fact, usually the majority is wrong um, and so although what Ramakrishna saw in that temple was so different than the rest of us see. We say, no, but look at his life, look at what, he, what, well, just, just look at his life and personality and teaching, the transformation that came about in his own life, and the transformation that can come out in our own, our lives, when we try to build our life according to his teachings. Then we say, no, what he saw was a real thing. That means there's something wrong with my eyesight. And all these spiritual practices, this whole thing about this using some different instrument to cut that chain, is really a way of clearing our eyesight. One of our swamis, uh, when I was uh, years ago in India, was mentioned that he said um, the, the, the problem in spiritual life is a problem of eye it's an eye, eye problem and so if, if we have a, this eye problem life well we go to a doctor and the doctor gives us some eye drops and when the eye drops <laughs> then the problem is solved he said so he, he anyway just kind of playing on the playing on words I uh, um, but that's that's essentially the thing my little ego which is clinging to this personality which is within bound within time space and causation is what is making me not see things as they are and viveka the instrument that is used in jnana yoga really means looking at things clearly so if you go back to that classical example of a rope being mistaken for a snake a natural reaction would be if I'm afraid of snakes, I'm going to yell and shout and run and be filled with fear. But but if I see a snake in my room, and then rather than panicking and yelling and shouting and all of that, I just pause and I just try to think in my mind. But this is what discernment means. This is what a person with Viveka would do. The person would pause and say, yeah, yeah, sure, I'm seeing a snake here what is a snake doing here there are no snakes in this neighborhood it seems very unlikely that a snake could be here but there's not enough light in this room let me switch on the light and then I switch on the light I see this it's only a rope I just laugh it off and there the matter ends so that is what Viveka is that everything that is happening in my life every moment rather than reacting to it instinctively. And our so-called instincts are so much influenced by our own inbuilt desires, ambitions, prejudices, biases. It's It's a whole package. And our entire life gets, entire life passes by just reacting mechanically by all these stuff that we have acquired. And And really nothing changes. We keep on doing the same mistake over and over and over again. A discernment means, Viveka means, not that we don't make mistakes. Of course, everyone makes mistakes. But a discernment would be to look at that mistake, understand why that mistake was done, recognize it, learn from it, and move on. So even a person with discernment will make mistakes we will make fresh new mistakes every time because it's like this if I make a mistake and I recognize what that mistake was I learn something from it so mistakes in life are opportunities for learning opportunities to acquire knowledge but only fresh original mistakes because if I make the same mistake again the only thing I learn is I have not learned anything because I made the same mistake before I'm making the same mistake again but if I want to keep on learning new things I must keep on making new mistakes so then we can look at our lives and say among the mistakes I keep on making how many of these mistakes are truly original how many of my mistakes are just reruns repeats because the repeated mistakes really mean I'm not learning so the instrument that Jnana yoga, yoga uses is Viveka, which is to acknowledge the mistake, look at it clearly, recognize what's wrong, learn from it, and move on. Now in order for this practice to work, <coughs> we need a certain qualities. One quality clearly is to not accept anything on mere belief. A person who wants to follow the practice of Jnana Yoga uh, should not accept something just because someone has said so. So a healthy form of skepticism, I think is very important, is very necessary. Skepticism is different from cynicism. It's not about saying, oh, who knows, it's everything is nonsense, who believes, and all are wrong. That, that attitude isn't helpful either. So we need to have faith, primarily faith in our own self. Swami Vivekananda said, first have faith in yourself, and then in God. Because if I don't have faith in myself, my faith in God is not, not much of any value. So first have faith in yourself, and then have faith in God. So faith is essential. Faith is essential for any kind of spiritual activity. One of Swami Vivekananda's often quoted words, he says it's good to be born in a church but not to die there. But that is meant that the beginning of our spiritual life, we need faith. But if everything is just going to depend on faith, that faith at some point must mature into experience at some and when we have experience we no longer need faith but until now faith i mean i'm using the word faith too much but but the the sanskrit word for it is really shraddha the faith is not really an exact equivalent of shraddha shraddha really means you know something to be true it's kind of a gut feeling but you have no proof for it it's not something you have read about. It's not something that, um, well, if someone were to ask you, prove it, you can't. And deep down but you know, it's there. So that's, that's what I mean. That uh, faith in God really means you know God exists. You have had no experience of God. You cannot prove it to anybody, but you know God exists. And That is absolutely necessary in spiritual life. Because if, if we are not sure about anything, uh, it's very difficult. I mean, at the very least, when you study a book, when you study the Gita, the Upanishad, any text, at the very least, you ha- need at least enough faith to acknowledge that this book that I am studying is worth expending the time and energy that I am investing in it. But otherwise, all of these things take time. All of these things need some investment of energy. So why should I invest my time and energy into any book or any practice if I find that the returns are not going to be good, good enough? So we need faith. And sometimes faith is limited. People think only re- religions. In fact, religions themselves are sometimes called faiths. Which is actually, I think, not very accurate and then this uh, very misguided debate is set up between faith versus reason I think it's totally meaningless because faith is needed even in even in secular life it's nothing it's not a monopoly of religion about faith even a person who doesn't believe in God but doesn't believe in religion needs faith because that person for instance uh, flies to someplace goes to the airport takes a flight Does that person know who the pilot is does the person know whether the the uh, the the plane is going to take that person safely no one knows but the person goes on faith well it looks like this flight will take me where it is supposed to take me Sometimes when you check in a baggage you need faith that you will find it at the end of this thing so faith is required even in our daily secular life it's nothing to do with only with religion and about reason it's not as if people who are religious or spiritual don't have any reason at all. Absolutely not. In fact, some brilliant minds. We I cannot think of a second mind more brilliant than Swami Vivekanandas. And he 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 could as religious as religious could be. So I don't see that it's not necessary, it's not possible for religious people to apply reason. And I don't see why faith people without religion can remain without faith. So this faith versus reason uh, debate is not particularly attractive to me. In any case, um, the bottom line is that discernment or viveka literally means looking deeply. So those who want to practice jnana yoga must learn not to react too hastily, to pause, to try to think, see things as clearly as they are. And for that, as I said, a healthy form of skepticism is very interesting, very, very necessary. Uh, how do I know what kind of yoga to practice? Again, uh, no one should tell you what yoga you should practice. I think we all have to look. I think the best way is to study all of Swami Vivekananda's four yogas and, and see which just resonates with you, head and heart. And as I said, it doesn't have to be just a one-sided practice. One of these four yogas, or two or three, again, uh, whichever catches your imagination, catches your interest, um, that may be the path for you. But often interest is not enough. We also need uh, the aptitude. What are the qualities necessary in order for me to practice certain yoga? So we need to look within our heart and say whether I have the aptitude for it. And then the most important Requirement for all of these things, no matter which yoga you follow or what you do, the longing. Swami, Swamiji says in one of his lectures, Do I want God? Because I may do my japa meditation and singing and everything, but if I don't want God, uh, none of this will really have that power behind it. The power behind every spiritual practice comes through longing. And um, the intensity of that longing is sometimes described in our books. In Sanskrit, they say it's called Deepta Shira Jalarashim um, Iva, which means if someone's head is on fire, the intensity with which that person would go in search of water to put out that fire, if we have that kind of intensity, we will realize God right now. You don't need to do practice any yoga. Right now, that is what Swam, uh, Sri Ramakrishna called Vyakulata, that intense longing. If someone's head is on fire and um, the person is running about here and there to look for water, and say, What's the hurry? Just have a little rasagulla and go. He said, No, 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 nobody would want anything at that point. Do I want God with that intensity? Sometimes people complain and say, Oh, I'm so far, I don't think I've made any progress. I haven't made any of this thing. Uh, and there may be nothing wrong with your practice. There may be nothing wrong with anything. It's just that I really don't have that intense longing yet. So it's very important. Again, very briefly, the basic practices as they are described in books for Jnana Yoga are called Shravana, Manana, Nitidhyasana. Uh, and really, the problem, as I said, is ignorance and ignorance can be removed through knowledge not by anything else and if i don't know who i am all that needs to be done is someone should tell me who i am and so when the teacher tells the student tatva masi you are brahman you are that ideally speaking the student should at at once know aham brahmasmi i'm infinite one problem solved you have realized god Unfortunately, if the teacher tells you you are Brahman and we have been reading the Gita and Upanishad so often and we have been repeatedly being almost brainwashed into telling us you are Atman, you are Brahman, you are everything and still nothing happens yet. Now if, in spite of hearing the truth, if nothing happens then I have to do the next thing and that is I need to reflect on it. So there is this um, hurdle which sometimes is called Asambhavana. Asambhavana means although we can hear or read about in these books which says well, you are the infinite one and so on, we can say how is that possible? This may be just some stories being cooked up. How how I, I know I'm a human being, how can I be divine? I know I'm mortal. What is the proof that I am divine? What is the proof that I am immortal? what is the proof that some ignorance occurred somewhere and how do we know all this? So these kind of doubts in Sanskrit is called asambhavana that all these things apparently seem impossible these doubts are a hurdle which is what prevents me from getting knowledge even after hearing about it then I need to do manana, I need to do reflection to reflect deeply about what is meant when we are told you are the Atman, you are the infinite you are pure you are perfect and in many cases they say in the those who become enlightened simply by hearing the truth they are called uttama adhikari they belong to the highest category of students those who need to reflect on it a little bit manana and then they become enlightened they are called madhyama adhikaris moderate average students now it's, it may so happen That even after reflecting on it for a long time, still no realization yet. Because there is a greater hurdle, a greater obstacle. And that is sometimes called Viparita Bhavana. Viparita Bhavana means contrary thoughts. And that that is what many times many of us experience. That yeah, intellectually it does make sense, but I still feel I am a human being. What can I do about it? So, at one level, this may all make sense. At other level, our daily experience is so contrary. That's called viparita bhavana. So, that's the third hurdle. Now, in order to overcome that, we need to do what is called nididhyasana, a deep kind of meditation. It's a deep kind of exploration about finding that real self, that real I. And then there are many different ways in which these three things can be practiced it's not necessarily chronological once we find after shravana nothing has happened we keep on doing manana nothing has happened we keep on doing nididhyasana we keep on doing all three then keep on doing shravana really means keep on this repeated study repeated reading repeated swadhyaya repeated reflection repeated this keep on doing there is a there is a saying in uh, in the 17th century text um, written by a Vedanta teacher called Appaya Dikshita in which he says Asuptehe Amrutehe Kalam Nayet Vedanta Chintaya Asuptehe, until you fall asleep Amrutehe, until you die Kalam Nayet, spend the time Vedanta Chintaya thinking about these supreme truths. So there is no holiday in spiritual life so if you are spiritual you are spiritual it's not that oh i have to put on now be a spiritual but devotee now i'm going to the vedanta center but now i have to go to go to work so i can't be spiritual there it doesn't work that way so the first thing we need is authenticity sometimes i think worldly people are more authentic than spiritual people because a truly worldly person is worldly everywhere even if that person goes to a temple that person will only think worldly thoughts. Do everything in a worldly way. And I think that's authenticity. That's authentic worldliness. And I respect that. But sometimes, those of us who see ourselves as spiritual, we compartmentalize our lives. We think, oh, I'm, not, I'm religious now. It's time for my meditation, so I have to be very spiritual. I'm now going to a temple, so I have to be very spiritual. And then, the rest of the time, i don't even remember that i am spiritual i don't i don't even remember i am a devotee i am a very different person now that's inauthentic life so the first thing we need to be if we see ourselves as devotees if we see that my identity as a bhakta has to be authentic then i am a bhakta no matter where i am even when i am engaged with my so called secular activities i am still a bhakta i don't stop being that so, we need this kind of an authenticity. And that is what is meant by that statement. If these ideas about God, spirituality resonate with my head and heart, then they should never leave my heart. That doesn't mean that you have to ignore your other duties and responsibilities. We, of course, we have to do everything. Sri Ramakrishna did everything meticulously. Meti, meti, met, meticulously? Meticulously. Ridiculously. Uh, even as he taught holy mother we saw even how to put the wicks on the on the oil lamp now there's nothing what is so spiritual about it so he did everything so carefully so being spiritual doesn't mean I somehow finished my other activities and then do other things carefully The truth is that if I cannot do my secular work carefully I won't be able to do even my meditation carefully if I cannot clean my room if I cannot vacuum my room if I don't cook with full attention I won't be able to do my japa with full attention we cannot say that these other things I can do haphazardly and then I will put my whole mind into this it's the same mind the the mind is not different the mind that I'm engaged in worldly activities is the same mind that is engaged in religious activities so this division is, it is not helpful at all. So some of these things we need to keep in mind. There's no, we don't have enough time to kind of go deeply into how Jnana Yoga can be practiced. And you'll find many hints in different books on that subject. So what I will do now is, there uh, are already some questions here, and if you have any more, you can write them, and then I will try to uh, answer as many as I can in the time that we have. Um, I can get that we are the body and mind. I cannot get that I am consciousness. How do I convince myself that I am the Atman? Uh, well, that we cannot get that I am consciousness, is that's really what ignorance means. So clear, if we knew we are consciousness, then we would be enlightened. So this is a given. The reason is simply that, for a long time we have seen ourselves as body and mind. And then it has become just a way of thinking and we just need to change that way of thinking now it's easier said than done sometimes it is we know even changing habits like if you're accustomed to like waking up late and say now I'm going to change and start waking up early we know how difficult it is so changing even these habits is so difficult the changing our way of thinking is even more difficult but not impossible and, and that's the challenge If I have not just in this this life it's not just a matter of few years in life after life after life God knows in how many lives I have seen myself as a mortal being and now suddenly someone comes and says you are immortal. To make that change is not easy. Of course it's not easy but you've got to start doing it and in order to make that big change we need faith that it's worth doing it. So yes it's difficult but we we, as they say it's a pearl of great price so you have to pay the price because enlightenment is not cheap and therefore we we really have to we really have to work struggle very hard for that Swami Brahmanandaji was once asked uh, what is spiritual life and he said I'll explain it in three words he said struggle 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 so if you are struggling in a spiritual life you are on the right path If you suddenly find spiritual life is too easy, then maybe something is wrong. (laughs) Can knowledge also become a bondage? Yes. Intellectual knowledge, scholarship can become a bondage. Sometimes um, having too much cerebral knowledge, if we don't recognize its limitation, can become a hurdle because often this ego of knowledge as it is sometimes called that can become a hurdle so um, while scholarship can be helpful if we are careful to preserve the other quality necessary for our spiritual goal and never forget that then uh, intellectual understanding is helpful uh, although it's not absolutely necessary uh, considering that um, we have so many saints and mystics and enlightened beings in history that we read about and even contemporary life who never were not scholars, who didn't read any books, Sri Ramakrishna himself didn't study any books. So it's not absolutely necessary, it can be greatly helpful, but it can also be an obstacle if it is not done in the right way. Why do we seem to constantly face difficulties during spiritual practice? Well, in which other things we don't experience difficulties? It's not just about spiritual practice. As if in our daily life, there are no difficulties. So, I I don't think this is something only special to spiritual practice. I think there are difficulties everywhere. And therefore, the word that is used for a true spiritual seeker in our books is always dhira, the brave one. So, spiritual life is not for the nambi-pambi. It's not like, oh, I'm... I remember years ago I was in Madras, and um, one person came. Um, I was I was a very young monk then, and um, I was sharing an office with our manager Swami, who was very elderly and very senior. So one, one gentleman came to meet our manager Maharaj, and um, they were speaking in Tamil. Um, and so that person told our Manager Maharaj, "I would like my I would like to have my my nephew um, to join the mutt as a swami and uh, Maharaj said oh what's the matter and where is your nephew no he said he has not come but I, I would like him to come and join here and then and then the Maharaj said why and he said oh Maharaj what can I tell you he he first tried for medical school he got no admission he tried for engineering son he's not just doesn't feel like doing anything finally we said well go and join the ashram <laughs> And we could see the management were so mad, so angry. It's like, what? You think you're someone who has failed at everything now is going to succeed in spiritual life? And you think all of us swamis are like, we couldn't do anything else, which is why we are here. So, it's not just about monastic life. It's about spiritual life itself. If I'm afraid of facing challenges in your secular duties and secular responsibilities, don't see spiritual life as a form of escapism meditation is not an escapist practice meditation is not for escaping from the challenges of the world in fact there are much greater challenges if you are afraid of facing the world there is a lot more to be afraid of facing the difficulties and challenges when you are dealing with the inner demons here so it is really meant for brave people Which Upanishad talks about knowing the knower? Um, I would say probably it's in the Brihadaranyaka. This this statement, Vidnyataram Are Kena Vijaniyat. You think so? It's in the Brihadaranyaka. But but really, I mean, the subject matter of what we have been trying to some of the ideas that came up today are really there in all the Upanishads. But this uh, phrase, uh, knowing the knower. Um, the at least one upanishad that comes right away to mind is Brihadaranyoga. How can one practice Bhakti and Jnana Yoga at the same time? Is it possible? Absolutely. Swami Vivekananda said that it's possible to practice all the yogas at the same time. Um, one of the things that Swamiji says is the secret of harmonious development is that when you are engaged in any sp- specific practice, at that moment, you should think that that is, that is what will make me free. That is, don't look upon any of the things that you do as, oh, this is just a part of a larger practice. In other words, um, let's say now you're doing Japa. So put your whole mind, as long as you're doing Japa, put your whole mind into it just recognize that this is the one thing repeating my mantra visualizing my ishta the way my guru has taught me this is the one thing that will make me free don't think of anything else don't think of any other practice don't just don't think of anything else that's the one thing we spoke so much about detachment but attachment is equally important because concentration is nothing but attachment. You are attaching yourself fully to the activity in hand. That is is concentration. So when you are doing Japa, although we generally don't use the word attachment, you get the point. What I am saying is, attach yourself to that practice with your whole being. With no other thought, no other distraction. But, after you finish that, you must have the capacity then to detach from it and let's say then it's time now to sing or to, to, or to do some other work. Attach yourself fully to the activity in hand. I mean, essentially, what nowadays the, the catchword that has become is like mindfulness. So be mindful of every activity. It means at that moment, that should be the only thing in your field of consciousness. And yes, so even those practices which we ostensibly connect with Jnana Yoga, while you are doing them, just think that that is the path. Then when you are doing something else, in which in your mind is connected with bhakti, do that fully, thinking that that is the only path. So it is possible to do both. And the two are not contradictory. Although intellectually, they may seem to be so. A lot of things that intellectually seem very contradictory in real practice are not. We see, we, why go far? We see in the life of Sri Ramakrishna himself. It'll be difficult to find a more perfect jnani and a more perfect bhakta all rolled beautifully into one being all of the disciples you see in the life of Ramana Maharshi such a perfect jnani and sometimes it's I think our mistake it's our thing to be we just pigeonhole these great ones into this is the jnani this is a bhakta but but that's not the case you look at their lives and you see they were as great jnanis as bhakta's that is what Swamiji meant that the highest love for God, where the Bhakta reaches in the ultimate analysis and where the Jnani reaches are one in the same spot. So it's not that when a Jnani reaches perfection, that Jnani's heart is filled with love. There is nothing but love there. And when a Bhakta reaches that perfection, that Bhakta's heart is filled with knowledge also. It's not just just love, no knowledge it doesn't work that way. You see in the life of Swami for instance, Latu Maharaj, while well, he was the most unlettered among all the direct disciples, even more unlettered than Sri Ramakrishna. And then we read in his life, towards the latter part of his life when he was in Banaras, these great pandits of Banaras used to come to him with this intricate passage from scriptures and read out to him and he would explain them. Now he hadn't studied the scriptures in any way. He didn't even. I doubt whether he understood, San, studied Sanskrit. Now, but with that perfection, when these intricate passages were read out to him, he was able to explain of what the meaning was. So, the when you reach that point of perfection, the distinction between this highest love, highest knowledge, completely vanishes. One becomes perfect in every way. I'm uncomfortable with the concept that only that which is eternal and unchanging is real. Why are not the changeable things and matters considered real when they are just the waves of the ocean of consciousness? Ebbing and flowing and changing form and shape, etc. Always the boundless ocean consciousness. Well, by by affirming that they are consciousness, you're already saying, although you're not using the word unreal, you're really saying that the waves and things don't really matter because because the ocean is all that there is I'm not so much caught up in the words if you don't want to call them unreal fine, just call them whatever you want um, if all these so called unreal things are bringing some kind of pain and sorrow and suffering and disappointment in your life and if you are comfortable with that that's fine too but if you find like now this is bringing me so much pain, uh, maybe I should change the way I look at them or change the way I think of these things. Even if I don't use the word unreal. Again, the whole point is that if, as I said, spiritual life begins with some form of disappointment. If I have something disappoint, if I'm disappointed with something, if I'm if I'm not happy with something, I must find a way to remove the cause of that unhappiness and sorrow and do whatever it takes to remove that. It doesn't matter what you call it. doesn't matter even if you don't call it yoga. doesn't matter whether you don't call it unreal. So the, it's not about words. It's about finding the most efficient way to realize our true potential. And that's one kind of a general, I think, helpful attitude in our life would be Do not get caught up in words. Shankaracharya in Vivek Chudamani, he says, Shabda shabda Jalam Maharanyam Chitta Brahmanakaranam. Karanam This web of words is like a deep, dense forest. And that becomes the cause of distraction for the mind. So, of course, you know, when you are reading books or even through lecture or talk, there is a lot of verbiage it 's like almost like a verbal diarrhea i 've not been talking for such a long time. It's just words, words, and words the The point is that the words should mean something, and those ideas may go and 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 rearrange some of the existing thought structure in our own mind and so long as it helps us clarify the things, I think that's great uh, so So don't be worried about the words unreal and real because as I said um, the dictionaries might give specific meaning to specific words but based on our own personal life story and our own experiences different words have different trigger points in our lives. So some people can be profoundly uncomfortable with, with the idea that oh this world is unreal that can be very unsettling uh, and so well don't use the word unreal we just say this world is very temporary world is very moving just anything again i'm i'm not bound in any words i'm i don't insist that something should be seen in a specific way just find a way that works best for you Oh, I'm coming close to the end of. No more questions? Well, can we say that consciousness is the innate capacity to know combined with all that is to be known? If consciousness is all-pervasive, why does the mind, it pervades, not know it all? Or is it just an illusion of not knowing? The mind is limited. The, the, the mind as an instrument uh, is limited. Now the world is also limited in that way. The world is not infinite. But the mind being just too small, um, even to gauge the extent of the physical universe is beyond the capacity of the mind. What to speak about the subtler realms. And so yes, recognizing the limitation of the mind It's the instrument of the mind through which consciousness tries to go out and grasp things. Um, The capacity of the mind being limited, the mind is not able to know everything. But, having said that, the truth gets described in the Upanishads as avang manasa gocharam, that which is beyond the mind, beyond the speech, etc. And so we are often told that the mind doesn't mind is incapable of grasping it. And the problem is that, but that's all that we have. Well, what else do we have? The body and the mind. And the body is even more fragile. The body remains only for a few years. At least the mind is a little bit more lasting. And if the mind cannot reach there, well, how do we go there? Fortunately, in another Upanishad, uh, which really seems completely contradictory, the Upanishad says, Manasai Vedam Aptavyam Manasa eva idam aptavyam. This truth can be got, manasa eva, only through the mind we can get to the truth. Now, clearly, one place the Upanishad says the mind cannot reach there, the other place it is said, not the same Upanishad, the other Upanishad says only through the mind you get it. And of course, this topic is taken up in the Brahma Sutras to, to, to reconcile these two apparently mutually contradictory statements. But we don't need to go to the Brahma Sutras. We've seen that um, Sri Ramakrishna himself, he did say that pure mind, pure buddhi and pure atma are one and the same. Shankaracharya in his commentary to that text, manasaiva Aptavyam, Shankaracharya says, Su-Samskritena Manasa. Su-Samskritena means the mind that is completely purified. So, he says that the mind that is completely purified is able to grasp although that's not the perfect term uh, is able to reveal the true nature and that's able it's able to reveal it because at that point you cannot distinguish that completely pure bind as a distinct entity from this completely pure spirit Any other question? We have still five minutes. Is the completely pure mind something then different really than the mind? Say that again. Is the completely pure mind in reality something different than the mind? No. Well, in reality, there is just the spirit. Even the the completely pure mind doesn't exist as a completely pure mind because ultimately it's all just one right. Yeah. Can on the between, um, ignorance and well it, it, ignorance mean we have to say ignorance of what and here if the infinite becomes ignorant if the infinite forgets I am the infinite then that infinite is going to see itself as finite. If the, igno- if the that which is complete forgets that it is complete, it is going to see itself as incomplete, and the awareness of incompleteness will produces the desire to complete itself. That's how ignorance and desire are connected. Yeah. Uh, does the process of reincarnation involve the mind or the atman? Both. Uh, so when a person dies, the, that person's, this sthula sharira, the gross body, of course, is cremated or buried here. Um, what leaves that body is the subtle body, that is what we are calling now mind. The mind, along with the Atman, go according to that yatha karma yatha shrutam, according wherever that karma takes it, takes up another body, lives there for some, all bodies are mortal. The body the sanskrit word for body uh, is sometimes the two popular words for body are sharira or deha sometimes the sanskrit words it's it's a, such a wonderful language sharira if you go to the root meaning of the word sharira shiryate iti shariram so by very definition body that is sharira in sanskrit means that which wears away so in the word itself the mortality is kind of embedded Deha iti deha, that which is burnt. So, uh, so the English word body, if you go to the original Sanskrit, it really itself says that it's it's not lasting. So what does last longer is the mind and the atman. So yes, so to answer your question, it's the the deluded atman which is still attached to this mind, along with it goes and takes up another body. So incarnation is for both. could be anywhere else we don't even know the extent of the physical universe and this is the books say um, that this is just one particle of this infinite being so it's just mind-boggling of where it is so oftentimes when we speak about being reborn because this is the only world that we have known we always think coming back here now I'm nobody to say it's here or there, but I can at least raise a, a reasonable doubt about why should it be only here. It could be anywhere. Yeah. Can you comment on the relationship between ignorance and your ego? Well, the ego is the sense of I. And a sense of I always coexists with the sense of not I. In fact they say that when a baby is born um, maybe some of your medical people here might have more uh, accurate information but for a few days or a few weeks the baby has no sense of i the baby doesn't know where its body ends and the rest of the world begins then after those few weeks when when the body when the baby acquires like i am somebody and of course, we have all been babies once. So don't think we're talking about somebody else. So we have all passed through that stage. Now, we don't remember exactly what what happened to us when we suddenly recognized that we were somebody. But it's easy to speculate. And that is, once I know I'm I, I, I as a person, you suddenly become aware of what I'm not I, what is not I. So this is me this is not me this is not me this is not me and when we grow a little older and we begin to think if we think we recognize that that which is not me is so much more bigger than that which is me that which is not me is so much more powerful i mean all the insecurity vulnerability that we that we have just by the sense of i because uh, the i is so less powerful than this entire universe which is not me. Which is why in the state of deep sleep, where there is no I, we are the most fearless beings. We don't have any fear there because there is no I, there is no not I. So the world does not have an existence independent of me. The world depends on me. The world exists so long as I exist. When I am not there, when my waking i is not there the waking world is not there the dream world exists as long as the dreaming i exists so this i is the is the is the basis on which the world that this i experiences exists once this i goes away that's why the state of unconsciousness in a state again these all different ways so i is really at the bottom of all of this and and the and and the problem in spiritual life is kind of getting this eye straightened out. Is this why the Holy Mother says we should feel the whole world to be our own? Yes, I mean um philosophically that is the most profound statement. That the world I mean, of course we can understand in a general sense. The world is our own, we are all family, and you know that that's 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 clear. But philosophically the world is my own in the sense only well, it is my projection. Just like the, the dream I see is my own, the whole dream world is my own. It's nobody else's. So, and this is again also my own. So, even philosophically, it's very, very profound. Okay. Rebecca, um, is there a subtle distinction between discernment and discrimination? Well, I just don't like the word discrimination. I think it has got a negative connotation to it. So I prefer the word, although some of our older books always translate Viveka discrimination. But I mean, because we have gotten kind of used to it, we know in what sense they are saying it. But, but out of context, discriminate, discrimination has a negative connotation. And therefore I, I prefer the word discernment. Yeah, it's just and my I pro- that personal preference. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I that's my personal preference. <laughs> yeah. So thank you very much. I greatly enjoyed being sharing this with you. Thank you.